Let us not call upon the name. The reading from God's Word this afternoon is taken from Matthew chapter 13. The text this afternoon deals with the fact that God keeps both the believers as well as the unbelievers, the righteous as well as the wicked, till the last day. And in Matthew 13, we find a parable where the Lord also explains this to his disciples that thus it is in the earth, on the earth, and with the coming of God's kingdom. So we'll start at verse 24. It's the parable of the weeds and the wheat. Matthew 13, verse 24. He, that is the Lord Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. And then we go to verse 36, where the Lord Jesus explains this parable. Verse 36, Then he left the crowds, and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's sing again from Psalm 17, and now the stanzas 4, 5, and 6. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Second Peter. This morning we looked at chapter 2, 1 through 3, about the warning about false teachers, their method, the destiny. Now we continue in the verses 4 through 10. 
For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. That's for our text. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, our Lord reveals himself in his word as the one who keeps his people. And the word keep there has the meaning of protecting, providing, Guarding as the element of safety. We sang from Psalm 17, and in Psalm 17, the image of the apple of your eye is used, and that, that dark spot in your eye that if someone would even try to touch it, you close your eyelid. And so God protects us, He keeps us safe as if we are like that apple in the eye. Psalm 17, keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me in the shadow of your wings. It's a beautiful image that we may know of the keeping power of our Father. But the word keep can be used in a different way too. For example, it can then also refer to being in custody. If you want to make sure that someone cannot run away, you put a person, let's say, in jail, and then he's kept there. So keeping can also mean that you restrain someone so that a person cannot escape, escape judgment, escape punishment. So both meanings are there, that that keeping can mean protecting, it can also mean to restrict Someone. And I mention this because in our text we have both elements. You have here the keeping of the righteous, and you have the keeping of the wicked. The keeping of the righteous is to protect them, to watch over them. The keeping of the wicked is to make sure 
that they face judgment. So when we speak about God as the keeper of this world, then it has also those two meanings. I'm sure you know the song, He's got the whole world in his hand. It's true. But he doesn't hold everyone in the same way or with the same purpose. The one he holds in order to protect, to make sure that it stays safe. The other he holds because he wants to judge. He wants to show his punishment. And that's the wisdom of our God. That's how he shows how he deals with this world. So in our text, we receive insight in the wisdom of our God, the wisdom that governs him as he takes care of this world, of the people who live on this world. He keeps everyone, but in that twofold sense of protecting or restricting for punishment. So the theme for the sermon this afternoon is our God is the keeper of this world. Our God is the keeper of this world. And we want to first look for a moment at the structure and the context of our text. But that will help us also then to look at the examples that are given and that will close with conclusions that we can draw from that. So we want to begin with the structure. You may have noticed as we read this text, it's actually one whole sentence. That's a long sentence, but it is a sentence that has several ifs. It's called a conditional sentence. It begins in verse 4 and ends where we end at reading in verse 10. And several times you have that little word, if, if God did not spare, verse 4, the angels, in verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, in verse 6, if, the, he, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, and in verse 7 again, if he rescued righteous Lot, and then in verse 9 comes the conclusion, then the Lord, so if, 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 this is true, or because this is true, therefore this now is the conclusion. So you deal here with a sentence that first lays out the reasons, and then we come to the conclusion. Now you may have noticed that the, uh, what maybe you call the logic, or the way it runs, is not quite smooth. In that as the sentence develops, there's a second element added so that the conclusion is not one, but is two. We'll come to deal with that as we look at all these examples. But uh, the structure, the main structure, is still this this conditional structure. And I, I want to highlight that because it helps us understand these first uh, verses, these examples. They are the basis the proof, the examples that lead to the conclusion. And that's also why the theme for the sermon is then based on that conclusion, God keeps this world. So that's the sentence structure. I said that we also need to consider the context. You notice that verse 4 begins with 
a little word for, that means it connects to something else. It gives the basis for something else. Our text supports what we saw in the previous verses this morning, and especially that last part in verse 3, that the condemnation of these false teachers is really something that is true. It has not been idle. It is not asleep. That means it will come. They indeed will be punished. And Peter now makes a point of proving that. And he needs to do that because these false teachers, as you will notice from chapter 3, they are saying, well, God's not going to do anything. Uh, All these centuries, all these generations, have you ever seen fire come down on people who did this? Because they were teaching the people to, to follow them in their, in their sensual and lifestyle, their, their life of indulging in it, to give in to what you want to do. And they say, well, nothing's going to happen. God isn't going to judge because no fire comes down and consumes us. So come along, it must be okay. If God didn't like it, he would do something about it, wouldn't he? And Peter says, no, you don't join them because they are on the way to destruction, a certain destruction. And that is what he now wants to prove. How do I know that? Because it is true, isn't it, that the evil people are allowed to do what they want to do? There's indeed no fire coming down on them. Brothers and sisters, it is something that that can indeed... uh, cause questions and and perhaps even tensions in the lives of God's children. Why is evil allowed to continue? When when you listen to the news and some of the horrible things that happen and what people do, why is it allowed to happen? Why doesn't God do something about it? And, And others will use exactly that question or the fact that it is allowed to happen to see there is no God. Why would you believe in a God? Why would you serve a God? If he is alive, if he's doing something, he would do something. So that is the point that Peter brings to the service here, and that is important for us as well. Is there a God who indeed deals with this world and will judge what is evil? And Peter says yes. And here is the proof. So now he gives three examples to back up his statement. He goes back into history. Now, I stress this, that these three examples, uh, the angels, the flood, and Sodom and Gomorrah, those three examples are there to prove that earlier point, the reality of God's judgment. They are not in the Bible here to tell you everything about those situations. So you will not find in our text everything about Sodom and Gomorrah, or everything about the flood, or everything about the fall of the angels. And we have to be careful that we do not go beyond what is here, but keep in mind the main purpose, and that is to prove that God's judgment is an active reality in our world. So let's keep it in mind and move to the first example. 
in verse 4. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's the first. What's clear? Well, it deals with angels, angelic beings. Angels are the servants that God created. And these angels, it says, they sinned. And then after they sinned, God did not spare them. What God did with human beings, with you and with me, and that is have mercy on us after we disobeyed him and, and rebelled against them, he didn't do with the angels. He did not spare them. No, he committed them to chains of gloomy darkness. He restricted them. They're in custody. They're kept there's certain limits to what they can do. And he does that in order to keep them for judgment. Eventually, they will be judged. But they're in a state now where they're kept so that they indeed will be there when the day of judgment will take place. So the fall of the angels, and, and this is indeed what we have to keep in mind, what I said earlier about the reason why we have these examples here. This is not to tell you everything about the fall of the angels. In fact, the many questions that are unanswered here. When exactly did this happen? Well, the Bible doesn't really tell us a lot about the fall of the angels. And that's because the Bible is not a book for angels, not for fallen angels. The Bible is a book for people, humans, fallen humans. So the Bible doesn't say a lot about it. And the safest is indeed to think about this as referring to what happened when, as far as we know, before we fell, the angels fell under the leadership of Satan, or the devil. There are some people who see this as referring to what we read about in Genesis 6, where it speaks about the sons of God having sexual relations with the, son, with the daughters of men, it's not very clear that that is indeed the case, that it involves angels or demons. Uh, so it's very much, it's much better to simply look at it as this is part of the fall that happened prior to our fall. Otherwise you go all kinds of speculative thinking. But again, keep in mind the point. What is Peter trying to prove? And that is the reality of God's judgment even though it may seem that nothing is happening at this point. Because these angels, these devils, these demons, they're still allowed to go to and fro on the earth. That's what happened, for example, in the book of Job, when Satan comes also before God's throne and God says, where have you been? What have you done? He says, well, I've been going to and fro on the earth. And we read in more instances in the Bible that the, that the demons have certain freedoms, what they can do. Uh, he's like a roaring lion going around seeking to devour. They are in chains, though. So even though they have certain freedoms under the uh, power and direction of God, because God is the ultimate power, these demons, they are already in captivity. 
They are already in custody, says our text. They are already waiting or being kept there for the day of judgment. Read about this also in Revelation 20, for example, about this chaining of these demons. So although they may have still certain freedom and are allowed to do certain things, don't think they're not going to be judged. They are kept for the very purpose that one day they can be judged by God. God keeps these demons so that he can indeed judge them. And that makes them all the more hateful and scornful because their doom is sure. And one word will fell them. So if God did not spare angels, you think he's going to spare false prophets, false teachers? Even though they may have certain freedoms and may seem to be able to do things without punishment, if God punished the angels and holds them so that he will, in the end, destroy them, what do you think he's going to do to these false teachers? So that's example number one. Example number two, that is the ancient world. And that is the world before the flood. And brothers and sisters, that world before the flood we know very little about. We know about the things that are in the Bible in the first chapters of Genesis. And it was a beautiful world that God looked at it and it was indeed wonderful. It was an amazing world. We know a little bit about it also when we look at excavations and 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 archaeology can show us. And when you see some of the animals and the creatures that were involved in that ancient world, pre-flood world, you already stand amazed in how awesome that creation must have been. God made indeed a most beautiful world. But he destroyed it. He was willing to destroy his own work Things that he had made so wonderfully, so beautifully, he destroyed it. Why did he do that? Because they refused to serve him. Because every thought in them was continually evil, it says in, in, in Genesis. There was only one man and one family left, that was Noah and his family. Now, again, here is the element of time. Because at a certain point, God comes to Noah and God says to Noah, you have to build an ark because I'm going to destroy this world with a flood. And you'll be the only one saved. But between the time that God said this to Noah and Noah finally entered the ark and the door was closed behind him, 120 years elapsed, time period. 120 years. And in that 120 years, Noah was talking. And notice he's called here the herald of righteousness. And a herald is someone who talks, who speaks. So in those 120 years, Noah's not just by himself and ignoring the rest of the world. Well, they saw what he was doing. And he talked to them. He spoke to them. He says, there's going to be a flood. And they laughed at him. What do you mean a flood? Every day the sun comes up again. 
There's no God who's going to do something about this world. We can go on with our lives. 120 years. And they kept on going. Till it was too late. Oh, they had said to Noah, See Noah, there's no flood. There's no God. We can go ahead. But when they found out there is a God and there is a judgment, the door is closed. So you think God is not going to judge a world that is living in sin and allows it to happen? God is not going to judge teachers who say, go ahead and do it? Just read about the flood and what God did to the ancient world. Now, brothers and sisters, here is where that element comes in that makes this conditional sentence go somewhat uh, not so smoothly. A new element comes in here in verse 5. It says, God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So God did not spare the ancient world, his own handiwork. Yes, it was going to happen. It may have taken 120 years, but no one was going to stop it. But at the same time, there was a way of escape. It was inevitable, it was not inescapable, the flood. God prepared a way for escape. And that is through that herald of righteousness, Noah. Through the message that he brought about a God who lives and who needs to be honored and served and who protects his people. And so the water did two things. It destroyed the sinners. But it saved Noah and it saved his family. So you see here this other element coming in that, yes, the judgment is a reality. It will happen. It may take time. But there is also the opening for salvation in the way of righteousness. And that brings us to example number three about Sodom and Gomorrah. And not only Sodom and Gomorrah, also the other cities in the plains that were there. You read about this too in Genesis. The cities that were turned upside down and got rained down fire and sulfur upon them and reduced the cities to ashes. And still, if you would go today to the Middle East, you come to the Dead Sea. And that water is indeed full of sulfur and salt. And that is because of the judgment that happened at one time. So if you would taste perhaps, or smell, or, or see it, then you see the evidence, and you smell the evidence of the reality of God's judgment. There were at one time cities that flourished there, and look what God did. He destroyed them, sulfur and fire rained down. And why did he do that? Because they lived in sin. And our text doesn't speak more about that, because that is not the point. It is the Judgment that happens. But notice that in this third example, that new element of escape becomes stronger. It says, If by turning the cities of Sodom 
and Gomorrah to ashes. He condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And you see, then comes the other element. He rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, because that righteous man lived among them day after day, and he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You notice, it's quite a bit there about Lot. Lot who came out of it. So this element of rescue, of being taken out of it, although the judgment will go on, that becomes stronger now. And brothers and sisters, I'm sure you are familiar with the history of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened? That the Lord sent two angels into Sodom and Gomorrah because of Abraham's intercession. And they went to the house of Lot. And they told Lot to get out. But Lot wasn't all that interested in going. Lot had so many connections to the life that he was living. And maybe he didn't quite believe either that it was going to happen. In the end, the Lord had to take Lot by his collar and yank him out of the city. Otherwise, he too would have gone under with it. It was certainly not Lot who out of his said, of course I'm going to go. The Lord did that. In his wisdom and in his mercy, he took Lot out of there. And Lot's family, although he lost his wife on the way out. So while destroying these cities, God also knows how to rescue. So there you have the three examples. If these angels were punished, if the ancient world was destroyed, if Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, then, yes, what then? And that's verse 9. Two conclusions, two things to come out of it. And notice that in this conclusion, the new element, the rescue, comes first, and the other element that was the beginning element comes second. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And that last conclusion then also leads into a further description of the particular people that Peter is dealing with and that he will explain about further in 10 through 22. They were indulging in the lust of defiling passion and they were despising authority. They certainly can count on the fact that God knows how to keep them under punishment until the day of judgment. So that is what Peter wants us to keep in mind. If all these things are true, and they are true, then this is the conclusion that God knows how to rescue the righteous. And God also knows how to keep the wicked so that they will face judgment. It's about the wisdom of our God. Notice that. God knows. So that is brought to the surface here, that you're dealing here with the wisdom of God by which he directs all the events in this world. Why happen the things that do happen? Because of God's wisdom and perfect wisdom. He holds the whole world 
in his hand. Yes. But with this in mind, he knows how to rescue the righteous and he knows how to keep the wicked for judgment. So we've seen the structure, we've seen the examples, and now we want to come to what do we take from this? What do we learn from this? How do we work with this? And I just want to highlight those two conclusions that the Bible brings before us. And I'm, I'm going to start with the second one and then come to the first one at the end. So what do we learn? Well, brothers and sisters, it's clear from our text that we learn. God wants us to know that there is a day of judgment. That God's judgment will come over this world. Our world in which we live, it is not going on forever. There will be a day when God will come to judge the living and the dead. It is inevitable because of all the evidence that is there. God will not put up with evil forever. And just because this world continues to turn around and evil things continue to happen, that doesn't mean it will go on forever. God will deal with it. That's what he wants you to know. As you live in the world, and you hear all these things that are happening in the world, and maybe you're challenged by other people, why doesn't God do anything about it? You may know he does. He will. But he does it in his way. By his wisdom. And he will make sure that each and every sinner will receive the proper judgment. When it comes to earthly judges, there are ways to escape. To run away. But not when it comes to this judge. Everyone will face him. So why are the ungodly allowed to continue with their ungodliness? Because God is keeping them in custody. He's keeping them in a holding pattern. He's allowing them to continue to do this because one day he will deal with them. He allows them to breathe, to live, so that one day they can stand trial before him. There's no escape. So the wicked of this world, who often are considered the mighty, the people that perhaps others look up to, who dishonor God, who go their own way, who do whatever their instinct tells them to do, who are out for their own glory, they are all under the custody of God. God allows them to wake up each morning to enjoy sunshine, to do their work, to go to sleep at night, to do all the things they want to do because he wants to keep them for that day of judgment. Don't envy them. Don't envy them. That involves another element, though, that's connected to this. Because, brothers and sisters, if there is a judge, and because there is a judge, and because there's judgment... It also means there's a law. There is a law that goes above us that says what is right and wrong. Because this judge, he will judge by his law. No matter what time you lived in. No matter what place you lived in. We live in a time 
where everything is considered to be up to us. You can do what you prefer to do. You can be who you prefer to be. You can live how you want to live. And God says, no, there's a law. And that law will determine what I do with you. So God's law is an absolute law. And let us not be ashamed to speak about it that way. In a culture where that is considered strange, if not plain bigotry, there is a law of God. And there will be a day when God will indeed judge accordingly. That's the first. The reality of God's judgment. Then comes the second, which is the first conclusion in verse 9. And that is that in all this, God knows how to keep his people. Beautiful words. God knows how to keep his people. Think of Noah building an ark to save them from this flood that covered the whole world. Think of Lot had to be taken out of there. God knows how to do that so that they will not go in under in the wrath of God. And that's the wonderful comfort. When you see and you notice and you're aware of all the things that are happening in this world. And you think of your children. You think of your grandchildren. How will they be able to face it? If you think how things have changed in 40 years, what will it be 40 years from today? And it can make you worried, concerned. We have a little boy this afternoon here who will be baptized received the sign and the seal, the covenant of what happened in his life when he is 40, 50. Well, says, God, don't worry. I know how to keep my own people. I'll put my sign and my seal on you. I know how to rescue you. Just think of Noah. Think of Lot. I know how to do that. I do it. And yes, brothers and sisters, he knows. He knows how to do this. Because in order to rescue us from the coming wrath, God did something that no one would have thought of, that no one told him to do. He sent his only son. And he said to his son, you have to die for them. That's the only way out. That's the only rescue. The death of Jesus Christ. Next week you hope to celebrate the supper of our Lord. And that broken bread and that cup of wine is the sign and the seal that God's wrath was carried by him. So yes, the wrath of God is inevitable. But it is escapable. And the only escape is by faith in Jesus Christ, the one crucified, the one now sitting at God's right hand. That is the only way. And what a wonderful way God has given to us. That's what he signs to us. 
That's what he seals to us. And brothers and sisters, that is the message that the church has to proclaim in this time of waiting. As the world is kept in preparation for that day of judgment, why does God delay? Because he gives opportunity for repentance. And that is why it is fundamental that the church continues to confess, to hold up, to proclaim. There's only one way out, and that's by faith in Jesus Christ. Through him we escape from the wrath of God. That is a glorious message. That's why when we live in Christ, we know in whom our hope is founded. Amen.